Let's please give him a warm round of applause. Thanks, Carrie. Oh, I... This is just right for you. Come on, get up close to it. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Carrie. Um, it's really gratifying to be here at Skylight because um, I've, you know, I've been here as a visitor and it's, it's wonderful. And so L.A. doesn't really play a part in the book per se, but it plays a part in the, the sort of like the book being a real thing. Because when I got here, all I had was the manuscript and we hadn't sent it out or anything. And so all the sort of like post-work happened here in Los Angeles. So I think this is like bringing the circle whole for me. But um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to read about, but um, the book, when I think about the book, I think about where it started. And it started with this idea of a book that I was like, why doesn't this book exist in the world? And it had to do with starting, it had to do with Washington, D.C., basically, and how Washington, D.C. is this narrative about 9-11 that never gets told, really, because, you know, for obvious reasons, all the, tra like, the, the trauma was not on the scale of New York City, so, but the city still went into a kind of physical and psychic lockdown, and I was there when it happened, and so, um, I don't know. That's what I was thinking about. So I want to read a chapter that's set in Washington, D.C. So I don't know if I made that make sense for why we're in Los Angeles, but I don't know if that has to make sense either. So, um, But thanks for coming. It's really cool to be here with all of you. And um, I know you're going to ask some great questions. And we're going to make Skylight proud with how well we do with the Q&A after. And then, you know, we'll sign some books and we'll go drink some beers or something, you know? It's like, it's, I'm glad you're all here, so thanks. This chapter is called Men with Plain Names, and all you really need to know about it is that in 2002, a year after 9-11 in October, there was a sniper driving around D.C., and he killed, I don't know, a dozen, 15 people, and it was completely random, but it all felt part of a piece in this post-9-11 landscape. I'm going to keep popping my peas, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's sort of the that's sort of the mood. That's the tension of it. And so, um, I'm just going to read a little. First, I'm going to have a little water. Men with plain names. By October, there was a killer on the loose. Five dead the first day, several more each day after that. No one was surprised either. This was the new normal in late capitalist pre-revolutionary America. I was working for a man named Mike, helping him paint a one-story apartment building orange. Working outside on ladders, standing in the open, we were easy targets for a man with a gun. I could have been back in school, but Mike really had to be here. It was his truck and his paint and his job. Mike had a girlfriend at home who was pregnant with a baby boy they were thinking of calling Michael. Just like his name, just like my name. I tried to talk him out of this, of course, but it was no use. As we work, we listen to the classic rock station where they almost never talked about anything real. Certainly not the Beltway Sniper. These were the radio voices in your nightmares. Upbeat, impersonal, commercialized. They were not being maudlin or ironic when they played Don't Fear the Reaper for a third time in the day. This was just part of another all-new non-stop workday rock block. We knew that our faithful disc jockeys would not condescend to listing off the totals of the dead or mentioning the manhunt. 
They didn't pander by offering us any updates or breaking news. They didn't tell us when the terror alert level was raised from yellow to orange to red. They just kept their heads down and played the hits. Schlocky, feel-good, rock and roll. Things were looking up for me, though. I'd actually inherited my father's car that morning, a blue Toyota Camry. It was just sitting there in front of my house when I came down the steps with my bicycle. I knew the car was my father's because I could see my brother sitting in the front seat. Hello, young man, I said cheerfully as he got out wearing a necktie. Are you here to tell me about the Bible? Shut up, he said. Let me inside the house. But I was already out in the street pacing around the Camry. This car was a beautiful thing to me. It never even occurred to me to ask my parents to bring it down. Have you had this here the whole time? I knew my brother was around, of course, right there at the end of the green line. My parents had driven him down to the University of Maryland at the end of August. The three of them spent the weekend in a hotel getting him settled. They drove into the city where I met them for dinner twice. And that was the last that I saw of my baby brother. I meant to come and visit you, I said. I've just been busy. He nodded cautiously. This is good, though. You've done the right thing bringing this to me. I slapped my palm down on the top of the car. My brother didn't say a word. What is all this shit, anyway? I was cupping my hands and peering through the back windows. The seats were filled with boxes and bags. I could see a matte black stereo and a 19-inch television set. I got kicked out of the dorms. I need to stay with you. You got kicked out of school? No, just the dorms. In five weeks, that must be some kind of record. I seriously doubt that, he said blankly. I straightened myself up again to stare at him in judgment, glaring at his stupid necktie. What did you do? I didn't do anything. Why are you wearing that tie then? Because I want to. Jesus Christ, are you going to let me inside the house or not? I could hear the strain in his voice now. Three more people were killed last night. Did you even know that? Yeah, sure, I know, I said absently. I was still marveling at the car. You've really had this here the whole time. My brother frowned, crossing and uncrossing his arms. He was glancing out toward the intersection warily. I almost died in this fucking car, you know. I was driving drunk on my birthday, and I spun it around backward like, can we please just get off the street, he asked me for the third time. Please. Sure, I said, passing my bicycle. Bring this into the house. Bring this, sorry, bring this into the house. I'm taking the car. Taking it where? To work, I said. Where do you think? Don't you have school? Don't you? My brother sighed and handed me the car keys. There was a killer on the loose. These are the plots of horror films or crime thrillers or just some bad buddy cop movie. We didn't know what was going on, which is different than being surprised by it. We'd grown accustomed to a world of sudden, randomized death. Literally anything might happen next. The news reported that the sniper had been seen fleeing in a white van. Strangers would repeat this to you eagerly. We made a game of pointing them out to each other. White vans were everywhere now. Was this a thing that people already knew, or had the sniper brought this fact to bear? His was a vehicle chosen for its indistinctiveness, its ubiquity, its absence of shape and color. It was astonishing to realize just how many people made their living driving white vans through the city. As often as not, he was killing in broad daylight, too. People died outside of strip malls and parking lots, places they never wanted to go to in the first place. They were killed in front of gas stations and grocery stores, running errands and waiting at bus stops. Understandably, the whole thing made people crazy. It became harder and harder not to fixate on the white van. It was the only thing we had to go on. 
People wanted warnings. They wanted a fighting chance. They wanted signs that they could see and understand. If only a flock of birds would leap out of the treetops in the seconds before he squeezed the trigger, we would know to hit the ground. Even just the glinting mirror of a rifle sight could count as something. As a community, we had yet to produce even one credible police sketch of the killer. Who are we supposed to look for? A man? Someone with a story? A person with a past? We were still just looking for a man now, right? Somewhere among the 10,000 white vans was a person with a gun, feeling the same heat that you felt, breathing in the same air. I imagined him driving with the windows down, his seatbelt left dangling at his side. He was just a blank and smiling face, the only truly carefree man in three states. The white van itself could never have come as much of a surprise, though. Ghosts have always worn white traditionally, flashing in the dark, floating through walls. In gunfire and bloodshed, he was there. In everything else, he might as well have never existed. The sniper was a terror, a cipher, a blank. I came home from work to find my brother watching CNN. I could tell right away that he'd had it on all day, staring back at me with this haunted look. Worse, he was still wearing the tie. As soon as he saw me, he stood up and started following me through the downstairs of the house, telling me that two more people had been shot in the parking lot of a Michael's craft store. So what, I asked. So isn't that weird? He keeps shooting people in front of these Michael's craft stores. Why there? Why anywhere, I asked, exasperated. I told him to stop counting deaths. I told him to turn off the TV and go outside. I told him to go back to school now, to go home, to stop hiding. There was no grand conclusion to draw from all of this. It just was. And take off that fucking tie. No, he said, stepping backward. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Do you work at a bank? What? Are you a Jehovah's Witness? Shut up. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the so-called Republican Party, I asked, getting right up in his face. Fuck off. Have you ever knowingly consorted with any so-called Republicans? It's just a tie, he snapped as he walked away. That's not an answer, I said. That's evasion. I'm keeping my eye on you. All in all, I had a car. More than a car, really. I had a birthright. The blue Camry had always been a thing that was rightfully mine, and I was hell-bent on keeping it now. I was the eldest son, of course. Mine was a condition beyond reproof. Plus, it was fun just to drive, ripping through the city with the windows down and the radio up. I laid on the horn as I rocketed past every white van I could find, looking up and laughing at all these startled faces. A young man with a car could do whatever he wants, go wherever he wants, even with a killer on the loose. This is the stuff of a thousand classic rock songs. I was going too fast to be killed now. Mike and I hadn't always listened to this music while we worked, though. Back in August, after I quit my data entry job and joined him painting apartments, we were devoted listeners of NPR. These marathon runs with the radio going eight hours a day until we could practically recite the news breaks verbatim. This was on the other side of town, at the yellow apartment, before we'd made the hard switch to classic rock. Mike already had the orange one lined up, too, taking us straight through the terror alert color wheel. The joke was not lost on me, but I was serious when I told him I would quit before he found a red one. Unfortunately, it was at this yellow apartment that introduced us to the specter of death. Long before the sniper started circling the city, Mike fell into a period of distraction a new and brooding silence that coincided perfectly with the midpoint of his girlfriend's pregnancy. We wouldn't even turn the radio on some days. It was one of these mornings when Mike climbed the roof with a bucket of yellow paint only to find the top sealed shut, painted on and baked hard in the sun. 
Mike tried to pop it off with a knife, but his foot slipped and the blade jerked right through his wrist. Fuck, he yelled. I stepped back to see what was happening as the yellow paint came rolling off the roof and nearly struck me. Wham! The metal can hit the ground and exploded all over my legs. Mike was already coming down the ladder, holding his wrist and cursing. What? What happened? He took his hand away and the blood squirted four feet across the sidewalk. Mike had severed one of the small blue power lines running up his wrist, clutching it again as he stared at me. I cut myself, he said simply. Jesus Christ, no shit, I said, feeling completely scrambled. What do we do? I walked away looking for something, anything. I took my shirt off and pressed it to his arm. Hold this, I said, as we watched the dirty white cotton bloom with blood. Fuck, fuck, do we make a tourniquet? Mike just smiled dimly and walked away from me toward his truck. I ran out ahead and opened the passenger side, helping him into the seat. I found his keys in, the, in his front pocket and slammed the door closed. I wanted to call an ambulance, of course, but Mike wouldn't let me. He said that he was fine. He'd insisted on driving, even. He was laughing when he said this to me. That was the thing. The anger was gone, and Mike was nothing if not tickled by the whole situation. The pickup made a tortured sound and fired right up. With my adrenaline pumping, I found the clutch and scraped it into gear. We lurched forward, and I felt insane. I didn't know the first thing about driving a stick shift. I just tried to keep it in a low gear. Straight lines, I told myself as I accelerated into traffic. I was terrified of stalling this thing out. I couldn't stop thinking of death. Was I really going to have to tell Mike's girlfriend he was dead because I'd never learned how to drive a stick? I mean, Jesus Christ. Mike leaned forward and flipped on the radio inexplicably. Van Morrison's wild night came blaring out of the tiny speakers. Mike smiled and started to sing. The wild night is calling. The wild night is calling. He turned to me then, sounding insistent. Sing it. No, sing it, goddammit. Shut the fuck up, Mike. I'm trying to drive. Hurry. I'm going as fast as I can. I'm dying, Mike screamed theatrically. Oh, I'm fucking dying. He was cackling and going delirious on me. I floored it through a red light with horns screaming out on both sides. I couldn't even hear myself think. In the end, of course, we made it. Mike lived. Everything was different after that, though. Mike became suddenly and unremittingly resolved. Resolved in being a father. Resolved in being alive. Resolved even in painting this next apartment orange. Slitting his wrist had been some kind of come-to-Jesus moment for Mike. The brooding silences were replaced by stupid jokes. NPR was overtaken by classic rock. He even entreated me to play the name game with him, baiting me into talking him out of calling his unborn child Michael. One more thing that he was fully resolved about now. What about Tony, I would ask mildly. Too ethnic, he would deadpan. How about something modern like Todd or Chad? What is this, a country club? How about Dave? Too many V's. It's one V, I protested. That's too many. And on and on this way. I couldn't help but laugh with him. I'd started to wonder what kind of painkillers he was actually on. But mostly, I resisted the urge to psychoanalyze Mike. I didn't want to think about how the pressure he was feeling had caused him to cut his wrist and almost die. If he said that he was happy now, then I was happy for him. He could play the radio as loud as he wanted for all I cared. I couldn't even hear it anymore. Classic rock was the sound of orange paint drying. Slowly, I began to realize that my brother wasn't leaving the house. Not to go back to Maryland, and not even to go outside. 
He wasn't eating. He wasn't showering. He hadn't even changed his clothes yet. He carried around with him this undertow of dread. You could feel it coming off him in waves as he stalked from room to room. Did you know that the Queen of of England is in town? What? I asked. Why would I know that? He shrugged. She's here to meet with the president, a state dinner or something. Good. That will solve everything. He leaned against the counter and watched me put my groceries into the fridge, staring at me at silence. He was waiting for me to speak. He wanted me to tell him something now I knew, but I didn't even know what he was doing here. Here, drink this. You're freaking me out. I pulled a tall can off a six-pack ring and handed it to him. We leaned back against the countertop and drank our beers in silence. I was grateful for the car, of course, but at what cost? Was I really responsible for all of this? What the hell was this anyway? I mean, how long were we actually going to do this? Did you go to school today? No. Why not? You had my car. You could have taken the subway. He didn't answer, sipping from his beer. What did you do all day? I didn't do anything. I watched TV. Did you eat? Not really. Why not? I asked, feeling exasperated. What do you do when you're at school? Who cooks for you there? Nobody cooks for me. There's a dining hall. You have a meal plan. Yeah, I mean, of course. Well, shit, I beamed at him. Why didn't you say that two days ago? Come on, put your shoes on. Let's go eat. I'm going to stop there. But, yeah, we can talk about anything you want. So, we got time to fill. First question is the hardest. Lucas. What's that? Any more mics in the book? Uh, No, this chapter pretty much covers it. This chapter is called Men with Plain Names. But, yeah, the narrator is named Mike, and then the guy who paints is named Mike, and his unborn child is named Mike. And then the craft store is called Michael's, where people keep getting shot, which... Um, as someone named Michael, uh, I know the I know the deep am- anonymity of being named Michael. So <laughs> it's my own little, you know, joke for myself. But that covers it. Um, so I, when I read the book, I never thought I didn't ever think that it was like um, you know you're writing about yourself. Mm-hmm which is maybe good or bad, but how did you decide to call the narrator Mike? Um, I tried for a long time to give him no name, but it's a 335-page book, and so that becomes more distracting than calling a Mike on some level for me. Uh, it was impossible at that point. I couldn't call him, like, Tom or Joe or something. It's just, like, the book is built out of the raw material of my life, and that, but that's just you know, a beginning. And calling him Mike is sort of like, it creates this intimacy with the reader who, there's a certain kind of reader who's going to think, oh, you're writing about yourself anyway, and they're going to make that connection no matter what. So it creates this intimacy that I'm being more direct, maybe. But, and maybe I am, but also, once I, once I foreground that by calling him Mike to the extent that he's named, I feel like I can completely diverge and... Um, it's it's a total fiction, you know, because like I don't have a brother, you know, things like that. It's like I feel free to. I wouldn't do this again, probably. I wouldn't call the character Mike, but um, in this case, uh, 
I was able to justify it to myself. And there's, there's some examples of people doing it successfully in a way that I like. Um, I felt like there were forebearers. Like Tim O'Brien, who wrote about Vietnam, he would call the character Tim O'Brien. I was very careful not to call him Mike Roberts. I just wanted to, us to share the first name because that was enough to, to sort of tell the story, you know. But, um, yeah, it's total fiction. And I like that you didn't no. necessarily think I was writing about myself. No, no, it's weird. It's like it, it totally how you explained it, that's how it worked for me. So. Cool. Yeah, I mean, on some level, it's... Uh, um, <laughs> I'm having a little fun with it because I'm, it's not a provocation, but I want you to think, oh, is he writing about himself? Because uh, it sort of pulls you in and then it's like, you can slip the knife into your gut or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, this, this chapter in particular bears out those two questions right away. So I, I figured that might come up. Um, anyone else? Um, you mean the fact that I'm a screenwriter and, um, and Andrew, my writing partner's here, which is, which is, I, have a question. I know <laughs> if, if, yeah, Andrew and I can always fill time up here together. Um, yeah, I guess it was born out of frustration with how hard it is to get a movie made. And Andrew and I actually wrote a stage play when we lived in New York for that same reason, you know, being able to, in that case it was, we got to work with actors, we got to put it up at this cool theater named, or called Cherry, Cherry Lane, and it was very immediate. And a movie takes an army of people and several million dollars and all these moving parts, and it's so fun when it works, but you need a lot of things to, stars to align. And so I can generate material on my own, and so it was, Okay, so part of it, I don't know, this, I don't know if this answers your question, but, um, well, I'm thinking about a couple of things now, but to, to try and answer your question, I think it's not, the muscle group is the same. I'm a writer. Um, I didn't get an MFA. I wrote 20 screenplays instead. So that's sort of, like, my education. I, like, can can sort of like uh, get into a scene, get out of a scene. I can do dialogue. I can do things like that. It doesn't feel that different to me. So it's more fun on the language level, I'll say that, to write a novel because, um, you know, you're, you're so much more free. In the screenplay, it's pure for a second, and then if you're lucky enough to get it made, all these moving parts come in, all these departments, and they all need a something, you know. We just made a movie called Goat. Andrew directed it. And we had, at some, one point, we had to take out all the driving at night scenes because those were a nightmare to film. So those are things you do to get a movie made, you know. But does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it's just interesting. It doesn't feel like a screenwriter mode. Oh, I'll take that as a compliment in Los Angeles. <laughs> The lowest human on earth in Los Angeles, the screenwriter. Fair enough. I mean, it was never, there was no, like, yeah. I'll take that. That's, that's cool. What's your process of crafting the dialogue? Like, how do you. A lot of it is just sort of intuitive. I think you either hear dialogue or you don't. And. I don't overthink it. I, some people have told me dialogue's hard for them. 
I think other things are probably hard for me, but not dialogue. And so um, with the whole thing, whether it's a screenplay or a book, I'm always sort of like speaking it out loud. And so if it, if it passes the ear test and I know the rhythm, then I pretty much know I'm in the right zone. Um, I was just starting to tell somebody that there's an audiobook version of the book now, which is like so such a treat. I thought like, oh, everybody gets an audiobook version, but they don't. And so I was like, this is great. But I was like, that was that was a process because they first they started giving me like 50 year old men to read the book, and I'm like, no, guys, it's got to be like. And then they give me the guy who reads the young adult novel, and I'm like, no, no, guys, like. And it was just like I was making. I just could tell like nobody says like. What about this? I want this. They just pick one of the three that they send him. So the sound of it is very important. And I know this is being recorded, so I'll just say they did a great job. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but um, yeah. Anyone else have a question? Meg. Uh, um, good question. It's <laughs> I'm thinking of film now. Like, uh, there's you. You use the word genre, and I don't think in terms of genre. I think of like, oh, you know, it's like, it's either a, it's a story on a human scale, and then we find a way to tell it. I'm good at that. Like, I can create worlds in which people who feel like people around us are like engaging and having conflict. I'm not good at like creating science fiction or like that kind of thing. I just can't do it. I don't have the muscle. I don't really love watching it. When it's good, I love it. But yeah, though I I, I mean so my limitations are like probably in scale on some level. Um but that's a thing to push back against too, so never say never, you know. So Yeah, because the worst would be trying to do the same thing over and over. That would be torture. So, um, yeah, I'm already, I'm trying to, I'm basically pushing right into it and trying to be like, this book, you know, I, this is the first novel I ever wrote. I didn't have a model. Well, I had models that exist in the world, but I tried to make it, it's an episodic novel. I tried to write it in these, it's 18 vignettes, and they, they, that's, that was a way for me to control time because it covers um, roughly, or it covers the George W. Bush years. Like, book ended with 9-11 on the one side and the financial collapse. And if you talk about a book that long, it, that could get a, that covering seven years, I don't know how to do it other than to, to sort of make it in these chunks and try to make it linear in that way. Um, so yeah, scale. I was like, if you told me to write, a, you know, the 800-page version of this, I just couldn't do it because that doesn't. I just don't know what that book is. But. So you're writing I am writing another novel, and um, from my background in film and working with Andrew, we, I'll, I outline, we talk, 
I write an outline, we talk about the outline, I write another outline, we talk about that outline, and then I get to a draft, and then we talk about the draft. And that's the only thing, that's the only way I know how to break down story and control it and create form out of like infinite possibilities. And so this is the way of saying, I have like a 300 page outline for the next book, which sounds insane, except that a good outline is infinitely better than a bad first draft for me because I've already basically thrown everything at the wall. So I'm, I'm a little reluctant to talk too much in particulars, but it's set in Buffalo, New York in the fall of 1990 in the run-up to the first Gulf War and the first Super Bowl, which the Bills lose on a kick wide right. And these two events sort of converge in a 10-day period. And um, so it's taking on big institutions like war and football and Catholicism and it's it's really weirdly sexual and like, because Buffalo is a very repressed place, so I was like, yes, let's make it very sexual and weird. And um, it's about people, so I don't know. I'm, I don't have it. I have, it's up there, but I have to, I have to figure out how to write it. So that's the book, if that makes any sense to you at all. But I'm excited about it. It's kind of the, I feel about this about this book a little bit too. It's a book that I don't think anyone's going to jump out ahead of me and write that book because it's so specific to my background and my understanding of the world and sort of like, I know what the book is in my head. I just have to write it now. So that's what it is. Yeah. Anybody else? Carter. Was it a book? Yeah, it was a memoir by this guy, Brad Land. And it ha he had this trauma that happened to him in, I think, 1998. And he was a student at Clemson University. And uh, there was this event that happened before the school year. And uh, he had, you know, whatever. But, um, but yeah, and this, this film director named David Gordon Green, who you probably know because you're in film, he got the book in galleys in 2004, wrote his own draft to direct himself and it never came together and then Andrew and I had a movie fall apart in the summer of 2015 maybe 14 yeah 2014 and the company we were working with Killer Films still had the rights to the David Gordon Greener graph, draft from 2004 and the book so we took those two materials and we wrote our own draft for Andrew to direct so no not any more than um, writing screenplays in general. It's like, it's really like the thing that is so satisfying about adapting is there's already this like raw material so it's just like solving the puzzle with the parts, with the pieces that you're given. So that's why adapting is appealing. Because it, it's, I'm not going to say it's easier than, than writing an original, but it is easier because you have like, you, like there were elements of GOAT that we had to keep in because they were if you took them out of the story, you know, I don't know. So, yeah. So it's good to have some constraints, I think. And that's probably a reason why I picked this episodic form, because it, it created certain constraints, and I could understand a story within it. So, yeah. The, uh, when you were reading it, the uh, dialogue was just so on the street. I really it felt so natural. Oh, thanks. And uh, I really like that. And I don't mean this to sound insulting to anybody who 
would have been different if you had had Yeah, you won't. <laughs> I have opinions, but I feel like they're just blowhard, like, guy who doesn't know anything opinions because I didn't go to an MFA. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have, I feel like, uh, how would this book be different? I'll tell you, because I showed it to some MF, people who had gone through MFAs. They were very hostile to the idea that, that first of all, they call it in, in, uh, a novel in stories. They like are stuck on that. That must be a thing that happens to people in MFAs. They come out with all these stories, and they try to link them together. And then <laughs> publishers are like, we don't like these. And so it was always a novel for me on that level. And I got some resistance from publishers who were like, because there's this negative space. There's this, uh, I was, it's important that you don't connect all the dots or hold the reader's hand so that you get, everybody finishes each chapter at the next, the same point, And then we all start at the same point. We, we never lose track of where we are. This book sort of, um, from chapter to chapter, there's a small time gap. Sometimes it's bigger and a lot of times it changes locations, but it's still this narrative voice. It's the, there's fidelity to the narrative, this first person narration. So, uh, if you accept that as a, as a rule and you're in it, I, I'm not going to betray that. So you're going to stay, you're going to stay in that perspective, that point of view. Um, but a lot of people were like, why don't you just stitch it all together? And I was like, because I wrote this book in reaction to those kind of books that feel sort of like flattened out and a little bit dead. So I wanted to I didn't want to create clear transitions and resolutions. I wanted to create this space where, as in real life, um, you only have your own story, sort of. So people come and go, and um, it's, a, it, it's episodic in the sense that um, that's how I think memory works. I think memory is this construction that owes a lot to imagination and it, it's informed a lot by what we need it to be and then there's all these checks against it and you're forced to accept some of those as far as like what's truth you know in quotation marks um, so I think if I took this into an MFA program they would have said you know stitch it all together like why are you doing this like you're making it harder a, a girl told me a woman, she was in an MFA program, she told me something like, I believe uh, something like the books exist for I, something like you, are, you, you as the author are servicing the pleasure of the reader. And that's not how I feel. I feel like a challenging book is, the, is, is worthy, you know? So it's not like I'm trying to mess with the reader, but I want it I give you an entry point, and then I want you to have to work a little bit so that when you make those connections that I've put in there intentionally, they're, they're richer somehow. So that was rambling, but the, I'm, I, you know, it's, it's a strange path that I've taken to writing a book, and it goes, for better and worse, it goes dead center through learning how to write screenplays. So that's, that's my point of view on it. Oh. <laughs> and I think I know people have been kind of maybe dissing the screenplay thing, but I think it's what makes the book so great is that that huge visual component. You're talking about color, you describe scenes where you can actually see them in the cab, you know, whacking the head of the car, 
all of that stuff, which for me, as a reader, especially with our shortened attention span, it moves along really fast. Mm. Um, and I, I really enjoy that. Um, I was also struck by how hilarious, I love the dialogue. Oh, good. Really great. And the relationship with the brother, at the same time as it being hilarious and the reaction of your Republican, your uh, mm -hmm. and your this, that, and the other thing, also seem terribly sad. Mm. There's a real tragedy in these male relationships, it feels like. Oh, absolutely. You know, you're working with this guy who's changing in front of your eyes and he's got this responsibility of having a, a kid and, uh, and then the brother who's obviously in dire straits and something very serious is happening. Mm -hmm. And there, there can't be this connection and then there's this guy who's out there shooting everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested because I've got the book but I haven't read it and I'm dying to read it now. But uh, is that a central theme that the whole sort of male alienation where you're with people but you're not with them because you somehow can't connect? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And the the thing about the brother showing up is um, he he sucks. He fills the vacuum of like freaking out over this thing that nobody can control. So then Mike has to basically um, put on the pose of being unfazed and. What I think about, and the other thing that's not, and then of course there's the other Mike who's going through this heavy thing of like, he paints houses, how's he going to pay for, a, how's he going to support a family? But the thing that's not immediately in the page here is like the chapter before, there's this girl who gets introduced and she kind of like rejects Mike. So it, it's sort of all of a piece. There's a point at which... Um, the brother, when they go to the cafeteria at the University of Maryland, and the brother says, you know, where is your girlfriend? And he's like, it startles him because he's broken up with her in the summer before. And he says, I don't have a girlfriend. And he's like, the girl who I met over the, and he's like, what are you, it's like, where are all these questions coming from kind of thing? So it's like, he's going, he's hostile in the sense, like you feel it in the page, his aggression. Um, he's a difficult character in the sense of like, uh, He's, and I wanted that, I, I, I hate the like love me, love me character. I like the sort of like, um, I don't know if I like him right now, love character, you know? Yeah. I really like that, so. Um, but no, that's a great observation because uh, he's, he would have been happy to, I think, isolate himself, but this one guy on his left is going through all this stuff and then his brother just sort of deposits him there and um, he asks him over and over like why did you get kicked out of school why did you get kicked out of the dorms and you have to read because I don't want to spoil it for you but it's just like um, it's very dysfunctional on that level but it's also like he shows up there because he, you know it's his brother and he feels like he can he can show up on his doorstep with all the, the weight of this thing showing up and it's like protect me but uh, that's not going to happen you know he's basically communicating that you're on your own and at that point the brother's not leaving the house you know so um, your question is better than my answer but I, I like I like what you're, you've, you've connected the dots yourself it's, it's but as far as like the whole book um, I hope he outgrows a little bit of the angry young man thing I mean, I hope he grow outgrows a lot of it, but um, it's sort of this drift, you know? It has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with um, 
speaking from my own experience, and I try to put this in the book, it's like I entered college into the sort of middle class boredom of the Clinton years. It was very bourgeois, like we were nothing special, but it was like seemed like there was a path ahead and we were all going to get jobs and then we'd all do the next thing and we'd all do the next thing. And then really 9-11 happens and everything changes. And it it's not this thing that happened on one day. It's the like slow ripple out that suddenly we're all overeducated and underemployed. But what that sort of unshackling from the Clinton, you know, middle class thing um, the book is very peripatetic. The, it just That's why it's episodic, because he moves across the country. He moves back. He goes to the next place. He follows a girl to Texas, like that kind of thing, you know? Um, so it's all of a piece in my mind. But uh, no, the angry young man thing is real. So Now, it took me till my 30s to like really settle down and like, and I probably, it only shows... Certain people, <laughs> but yeah. Anybody else have a question? I have a question. Actually, I've I've read the book, so obviously, but it's it's funny because that's just I only realized it now listening to you read that. There's a thing in the book that I always feel we. Mm-hmm. The, the whole book feels like a rallying cry, and I heard you use the we, you use we almost like the royal we mm. a lot, mm. and you're talking about the Bellway sniper and I, for some reason the whole book feels that way to me and again I think it's like my time period that I came of age like these things marked my life too. Do you use me more than that? Is that why you used it or were you ever aware of that? Um, well you know you've read the book you know how there's that there's a chapter in Portland where uh, that guy goes missing and it's like, we all kind of knew this guy, but we didn't know him at all. And it's like, it be, he becomes, he's divorced, he's separated from his identity as a person because everybody is thinking like, oh, I could, this could happen to me. Like my life could like skid off the rails too, kind of thing. Um, so it's an idea that I'm conscious of, but. Um, I mean, in that way it's weird because it really made me- and you were just that chat sort of like speaks to a generation mm. in, a, in a weird way. I don't know again if I just associate with the character or really well, it's something I really like about it. And so it's also just a compliment because uh, that I never thought of like, until I heard you read it. But there's something great about it. And, and that the, the guy is so obstinate and different. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet uh, you always kind of feel like you're like, like with him on everything. Yeah, he takes you right up to the edge and then he hopefully pulls you back with him. But uh, I think about, this is maybe not going to answer the question, but I think about like growing up between generations and it's it's in what I talked about, about the Clinton years turning into the Bush years, but it's like when we grew up, we were, you and I, we were Generation X, right? It like meant a thing in the 90s, but we were always too young to really be part of it. And then there was this you know, sort of bridge generation called Generation Y, whatever that was, and nobody wanted to be part of that. And then it's like the millennials became the dominant culture, right? And it's like, um, I was just having a conversation with Betch, and she said she called a guy who works with her a millennial, and he freaked out because millennials don't want to be called millennials. But this, this will make me lame, but it's like I identify with what they're going through because it's much more in line 
with my growing up than it is with um, Generation X, who we have two 70-year-olds running for president. Where the hell is Generation X? You know, they've like abdicated. They, 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 I have things to say about Generation X. But um, all the social change that's coming up is coming up from the bottom up because Generation X just didn't fill the void. And so I feel a bit of we with the sense of like, gener like you know, we're all at the mercy of the baby boomers still, and that's insane, you know? So anyway, does that... Is that yeah, no, it does. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's almost pan-generational in that way too. Yeah. Because like, we always talk about this, that, you know, if, I, I don't, I'm not technically millennial, I'm technically Gen X by a couple of years. Yeah. I don't feel like a Gen X. Mm -mm. And I mark all these things in my, and yet I talk to some millennials that were like really little when the mm -hmm. powers, you know, got hit. And I'm like, we don't really mm -mm. So I'm wondering if it's like <laughs> some like intergeneration. Yeah. Weird. And the compulsion, the need to name things and put people in the boxes. Like, I'm participating in that in this conversation, but it doesn't mean anything, really, you know? Like, it's the fact that if we were born... I'm a 35-year-old man with no kids, you know? Like, that couldn't have happened 40 years ago. Or it might have. It would have happened to maybe a guy like me, but... <laughs> I, maybe I'm... Molly says... Or no, Sorry. <laughs> I love you. I love you, Molly. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I don't know. Um, I've, like, taken us into a corner. Um, does anyone have anything else they want to... Um, as someone who knows you and knows you're, like, obsessed with this, like, kind of doom around mm. like, earthquakes and traffic and, like, the drought, Yeah. <laughs> was that... <laughs> Was that really real and happening in D.C. and in your life after 9-11? Or was this oh, yeah. a dramatization of that? No. I mean, this is easy to forget, I guess. And you're, you're a good 10 years... Yeah, you're a good 10 years younger than me. It was the strangest thing. Like, the thing I tried to set up when I, I started. It's like... 9-11 um, happens, and, you know, it, it it's... It was on a different scale in D.C., but it, there was still, you know, a plane hit the Pentagon, there was smoke in the air, it goes into a complete shutdown, and then it, especially in D.C., it, it becomes this kind of, like, weird police state. And so that was, like, disorienting to begin with. A couple weeks later, the anthrax attacks happened. That happened very directly in D.C. Uh, a year later, the Bellway sniper, this is a real thing, like, he was driving around, and there was no white van. It's more like... Um, that, we can get into that too, but um, then the two wars, and then outside of D.C., there's Hurricane Katrina, so that's like natural disaster. This happened in like a four-year period. So it like informs my creative imagination as much as it informs my like apocalyptic. But I feel like really come to peace, like I used to be able to, well, whatever. You and I share some of this, but I like used to get really anxious about flying, about everything, and now I'm just kind of like, it's okay. You know, I've actually been driving in L.A. some more. Yeah, so feeling pretty good about that. It's no big deal. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. And so the book has this, it runs at this really high speed of like 
we're all doomed. Because I thought there was going to be suicide bombers in the subways. That didn't seem like an insane thought in, in 2001, you know? Um, it, it runs at this speed, and then you have to sort of release that. Like, the book sort of moves west, and that's when it sort of, like... This relationship changes, and they go to the. He goes to the West Coast, and he's just sort of like starts over because it's got that geographical distance, but also, how could it feel as immediate uh, when you're that far away? You know, and the thing to remember about 9/11 is it was a television event as much as anything. We weren't sitting there refreshing the New York Times. It was like a thing we watched on CNN on this straight loop of like. This horrifying thing over and over and over, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know what the book would have been if I lived in New York, but I lived in D.C. at the time, so it sort of like starts there and builds out. But there's also so like there's we're so doomed, so fuck you. Because yeah. Like development, and so you're like mm -hmm. you keep saying like. Yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah. Like, uh, you're joking about being shot, and you're like... Yeah. It's like... Well, it activates a kind of fearlessness. If you're like, um, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, and then it's like, it's not going to happen to us. It's sort of like, wh what are the odds that this guy with a gun is going to shoot you, you know? You sort of have to carry on with your life kind of thing. But it feels like a revolt against that. I don't know when I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's how I think of Mike, is it's a pose... Like, it's not like he's not freaked out. There's a guy driving around, and later in the book, it's like, people's behaviors are changing, and this really happened. It's like, people start walking in zigzags across streets, which looks insane. The gas stations start putting these tarps down over the, the, the pumps. All this stuff, the city sort of, like, changes with it, and it feels crazy. So his sort of obstinance is him trying to be like, I'm not affected the way you're all affected. Which is a pose, you know, but it's also like I think it really does activate. If you don't die in 9-11 and you don't die in the anthrax thing and you don't die in the sniper thing and you're like a young man, you're like, I must be invincible. I'll be fine. And then you run up against the fact that you're not even close to invincible and then you have to deal with that vulnerability. And that's kind of the, the book for me in a lot of ways. But so the the backdrop it's political but that's it's more about the people you know like um trying to reflect how the young people i knew lived in this like crazy time if this is the thing if donald trump let's not talk about politics too much if donald trump gets elected we will forget how terrible george bush was as a president and that that devastates me so i wanted to make some record of like how crazy it was to be <laughs> to live through the George W. Bush years. So maybe that's a point to close. <laughs> um, what do you think, Carrie? I think that sounds great. Okay. Um, you guys, please do stay and mingle. I'll get rid of these chairs, um, and I'll set up a signing table up here. But first, let's give them You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.